Hey, my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. I'm very glad to be with you. Shout out to everybody joining us line, and most importantly, shout out to everybody in the building. Uh, yes, give it up for yourselves. Hey, I really want to, man, just take a time to celebrate what's happening. Uh, our teens, uh, our kids growing older and having a teenage ministry here at Renaissance is something that, to be perfectly honest, as we thought about what Renaissance would be, I never even imagined that one day we would grow to be a, a, a bigger church, not just numerically, but also that we can like, have specific discipleship and opportunities for our, our kids to grow. So for just one quick second, I want to take off the pastor hat and put on the dad hat. Uh, one of my biggest joys uh, is to see my kids being poured into and their faith being nurtured and developed here at Renaissance. Every single night, I pray for my sons, and what I pray for them is that they would move from being just my sons to also being my brothers in Christ. And right now, they are in with their small group leaders being ministered to, but one day, they're going to grow up to be in middle school and eventually high school. I don't think you understand how powerful it is to be in a child's life. And what I want more than anything is for... You guys, as we're hearing about Renaissance teens launching and the applause and everybody's excited about it, uh, I don't want just your claps. I want you to, to be a part of it. I want you to consider being a part of it. And especially men who want to be involved in the life of a teen, I want you to really consider it. Now, one of the things that I know to be true personally is that responsibility creates accountability. So sometimes people are like, yo, I just need to read through the Bible like three more times. Well, I just need to kind of get one or two things more in my, in my life right before I start to serve in this capacity. And I think that's partially true that God does invite us into greater levels of accountability with him before we start to do things. I don't think we should be hypocrites. But by people signing up to be in a life of kids, by you having to show up week after week, that accountability paradoxically creates more reasons for you to read the Bible and to pray and to live with integrity. Now, I know this firsthand that I never go too long without reading the Bible and praying because I got to get on stage on Sunday mornings. <laughs> that responsibility that I have creates accountability. Now, for a lot of you right now, um, I would just love it if you would just talk to Shawana. If, you, if you're not already serving somewhere and you would potentially be open to serving the life of our teens, man, talk to Shawana. She'll be in the lounge after service, and I, I think it will be something that is powerful. Uh, I don't want you to underestimate what your presence could mean in the life of a kid. Amen. 20 years from now, my replacement is already in Renaissance Kids. <laughs> and you're going to have a chance to shape them. So before we get into today's message, let me pray before I start crying before the message starts. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, what a week we have had, not just nationally, but internationally. Lord, we will, I have no, no idea what it feels like to hear attack planes hovering over my head, to fear bombs being dropped on my house or the house of people I love. So, Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, your image bearers, people created in your image, Lord, who are uh, uh, under attack, Lord. Father, we pray for an immediate cease of violence and attack by Russia. Father, I pray for the Africans in Ukraine stranded and not led into other borders. Lord, even in a time of war, uh, racism doesn't seem to take a break. So, Father, I pray for you, the great I am, the one who is all things, Lord, to, 
to move, to comfort, to quench the fires that are raging right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So my wife loves to travel, um, and I think in many, one of the many ways that she has upgraded me uh, has been in our experiences and in traveling. And before I met my wife, I had been to Jamaica uh, before, and I did what most Americans do when you first go to Jamaica. You go to the resort, you eat the food, you see the uh, things, but you don't really leave the result, resort or have any real interaction with the real community. But then I got married to my wife, who's mar uh, whose mother uh, is Jamaican, born and raised, and she has a house in Jamaica, just got back on Thursday night. Yes, shout out to my mother-in-law. And then I got to go to Jamaica and be with real Jamaicans. Now, I am fascinated by uh, accents and how people talk. And I grew up in New York, so I have a lot of Jamaican friends. But when you get to Jamaica and you are around Jamaicans, it's more difficult to understand. <laughs> and when you are around Jamaicans who are around other Jamaicans, it gets even more difficult to understand. And when you are around Jamaicans who are around other Jamaicans and some rum punch has been flowing, <laughs> it's almost impossible. Now, I pride myself on being someone who does not need babysitting at any family function or at a dinner party. But there are times where I'll just be standing in the corner at a dinner party, and I can see that my wife knows that I don't know what's going on because I'm just the dumb American nodding and smiling. And she's like, Jordan, they asked you a question. They asked you, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, you have to respond to that, Jordan. Now, I'm fascinated by accents uh, because they are a really powerful reminder that there are things about you that have been formed in you without your knowledge and without your permission. The way you talk, the way you pronounce the word coffee or water or whatever it is that you say, a big part of you, and I see this every time I go to Jamaica when I'm with my mother-in-law, a big part about you, the way that you talk has been formed inside of you. You never thought about why you pronounce words the way that you do. Just over time, in the way that you were raised, in the people that you were around, in the environment that you were brought up in, it formed something in you. And that happened without your knowledge and without your permission. Now, this is really profound and interesting because it is not just in your accents that that is a true statement. That's true in every single part of you. Now, modern people would say that you are the result of your choices, and that is partially true. But a better statement is that you are a result of your choices and the choices that were made for you before you were even born. Psychologists would tell you that the person you and I are is a complicated mixture of things that we did not get a chance to decide for ourselves. There's a lot of decisions that have affected the course of our lives. Where we live, what you are called, who you spend your time with as a young child, what social class you belonged to, and all of the things that you were raised in and around there are things about you, the way that you live life, the way that you function, the way that you handle different situations that you were born into, and they affect your life more than you know. Now, this is really important because of this. Over the years, I have grown in my understanding of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And some people hear that word disciple, and they think it's this super deep and overcomplicated word. But discipleship over the years, I'm learning is a better definition of it is that it is us learning things about Jesus that we didn't know. But more importantly, it's us unlearning the things inside of us that were formed deeply and uh, again, in relearning what it means to follow Jesus. 
So discipleship is learning new things. It's unlearning the things that have been formed inside of us that we should not be um, holding on to, and it means relearning. Now, one of the best ways I know how to explain this is that uh, a couple months ago, we did a series on relationships, real love. And for many of you who tuned in, it was one of the most watched and uh, downloaded uh, series that we did because relationships, be they with your significant other, coworker, roommate, boss, parents, children, relationships affect everything about us. Everything we do and experience, we experience them relationally. And one of the greatest feelings of, of dissatisfaction oftentimes happens relationally. Now, if you want a good relationship with anybody, you are going to need to learn how to navigate conflict. Now, here's a lie from the pit of hell. A lie from the pit of hell is this, that if this is a good and godly relationship, there should never be any conflict. Now, there are some things, there shouldn't There should not be devastation that's occurring all the time in your relationships. But every good and healthy relationship is going to have conflict. Years ago, I was talking to a couple that was about to get married. And I say, hey, you know, so what do you love about the other person? And the first, and the guy went, he was like, man, she just does all this for me. She's so great. She makes me feel so good. And I was like, okay, well, you don't love her. You love yourself, bro. You're just telling me all the ways that she makes you feel good. Now, when we pressed on a little further and I asked him the question, well, tell me a time that they disappointed you, and then how did you deal with that? How do you deal with conflict? See, what is a good signifier of how thriving a relationship will be is not what happens when everything is great, everything is gravy, but is there a gracious, Christ-centered, gospel-filled way to handle and to navigate with conflict? Now, my wife and I, when we got married, we had two very different styles of conflict. I grew up in a house of lawyers. My mother was a judge. And I can distinctly remember a time when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and my brother and I had an argument. And my mother told me, all right, counselor, you have 10 minutes to prepare an argument. So I ran in my room, got my legal pad out, started writing some notes. 10 minutes later, I emerged with some Olafs and a suit jacket. And um, when I got out, I had my argument to present to the judge. Over the years, I've learned professionally how to really develop and craft an airtight argument. Over the years, I've gone to high school and college and law school, and I practiced law for about seven years, and I cut my teeth as a litigator cross-examining people uh, on, on Fordham Road, and I am a litigator through and through. And that is extremely helpful in the practice of law. That is not helpful in your apartment having a conversation with your wife. One of the biggest mistakes I made early on in our relationship was treating our personal disagreements like professional ones. My go-to line, which I don't say anymore, so I'll tell them this way, my wife is over there. My go-to line was, is it fair to say? (laughs) So we'd start an argument. I would just let her talk and say, go ahead, finish. I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Okay, great. Is it fair to say? (laughs) What I realized pretty quickly was that my style of communication my style of handling conflict was fantastic at winning a point and terrible at building intimacy. That if my goal was the other person, cross-examining someone is a terrible approach. Now, in my understanding of what it means to be a husband, to be in relationship with her, I have and I had to unlearn the ways that I had been formed to do conflict. In my wife's home growing up, um, there really wasn't a lot of physical Uh, emotional or arguments happening in her home. Her parents were very amiable uh, people. And then even though that there was 
uh, breakdowns in their relationship, she really didn't see conflict. Now, what she has come to know, and we were talking about this yesterday, is that in her mind, conflict led to a dissolution of a marriage. So when we would have disagreements, she would push it down. And unless it was something that was like really, really big, she just would stuff it down and wouldn't say anything about it. In her mind, she wasn't being a peacemaker, she was being a peacekeeper. Paradoxically, by not saying anything, she was robbing us of the experience of really building intimacy. Over the years, what she's had to unlearn is that conflict, or what she's had to learn is that conflict leads and can lead to real intimacy. And that intimacy, most of the time, is on the other side of really navigating through conflict. Now, I know that y'all know this to be true in your own lives and your own relationships. The people that you are tightest with, y'all done been through some stuff together. You've walked through conflict. You've walked through some things. You've been through some things. And on the other side of that is a real connection. Now, conflict is just one example of about 100 that I can give of things that we have to unlearn in order to be the type of people that God is calling us to be, whether in our relationships with others or in our relationship with him. Another thing I can think about is something that I've seen over and over again in the last eight years is the way that people deal with failure and mistakes. Now, so many people grew up in a home where failure and mistakes were unacceptable. Unacceptable. And as a result, what happens is people go into these self-loathing cycles that they can't get out of. Other times, people just hide. They hide their mistakes, they hide their failures out of fear that they themselves would be rejected because this is what has happened in their lives. And then what happens is you go months and months without seeing someone because they go and they go and try to fix it on their own, and then finally they hit a breaking point and come back anyway. How you deal with failures and mistakes in your life is a matter of your discipleship. And it might be something that you need to unlearn the ways that you were formed by your family of origin and how they dealt with things in order for you to be the person that God is calling you to be. Now, the thing about life, the thing about discipleship is that we need to learn, unlearn, and relearn. There are things about Jesus and how he wants you to live that you just don't know yet. You're just unaware of what God is actually calling you to do. And that's okay. There are things about you that have been formed without your knowledge and without your permission that you need to unlearn. There are things about what God is calling you and I to do that you and I are so prone to forget that we need to relearn over and over and over again. Here's why. If we don't go through this process of really learning and unlearning the things that have been formed in us, we run the risk of becoming hypocrites. Now, in modern days, a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. But in Scripture, when Jesus talked about hypocrites, he wasn't talking about people who said one thing and did another. He was talking about people who had an external appearance, appearance that they were close to God, but their hearts were far from him. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 7. It says, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most holy, upright, morally consistent people of their day. And Jesus says, your external life does not match your internal life. And that's a danger for us all. The goal that Jesus has in our life is to transform all of us from the inside out, a deep and a real transformation that will stand the test 
of time. Something that's not superficial, based on excitement. You had a good church service and you feel like everything is good. Uh, I'm one of those people, if anybody likes me, anybody's like me, I get really excited about things and like three days later, I've just stopped it completely. That's not what Jesus is after. He's not after like this excitement-based uh, discipleship in your life. He wants a real transformation. So what does that look like? I want to turn to a text in Ephesians um, that's going to highlight some of this for us today. Uh, Ephesians was written by a man named Paul. And Ephesians is something called an epistle. Epistles are letters written to a group of people. So Paul is this disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. And Paul was one of those people who, back in the day, actually was a Pharisee, and he hated Christians, so much so that he persecuted Christians and oversaw the execution of Christians. And then the word spread that this dude, Paul, who was a murderer of Christians, is now a Christian himself, and now he is, he is putting his life on the line to spread the gospel. And Paul was going all around and writing letters to churches, and this is one of those letters that he wrote to a group of people much like is sitting in this room and watching us online right now, this group, this church at Ephesus. So here's what Paul says to this group of people, and he's speaking to us as well. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with a greed for more and more. Now, it's really interesting that what Paul is saying here, um, he's telling them that they should no longer walk as Gentiles do. And Ephesians by birth were Gentiles. So Paul is not coming to them and saying, like if he were talking to us, he's, he's not saying you Americans should not live like Canadians. No offense to the Canadians in the room. He's basically saying you should not live like how you were formed to live. By telling them you should not walk after the way of the Gentiles, he's saying there was a way that you were formed by your people around you, something that was going on in the air, and I don't want you to follow that. It would be like Paul coming to you today and saying, do not follow the American dream. The American dream, which says, work hard, have the life that you want, retire comfortably, and do nothing else, that is not God's calling on your life. In Scripture, in Acts 20, Paul, the same person, says this, but I consider my life of no value to myself. Here's my purpose. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So if Paul were writing this first part of the letter, he would come to us Americans and say, don't follow the American dream. You shouldn't esteem your life above the mission that God has for your life. God has something for all of us. And that is the call that God is calling us to, not to comfort and luxury. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying things. There's nothing wrong with vacations and having good things. But to think that the call of God in our life is synonymous with the American dream, we would be lying to ourselves. So in the first part of the scripture, Paul warns against them doing what everybody else around them is doing. He warns against them doing what they were raised to do and raised to believe. What is Paul basically saying? That there is a way that is everybody around you has, is operating, and there is a way that unless you interrupt it, you're going to operate in the same way as well, and that you need to unlearn these things. The scripture continues. Um, it says in verse 20, But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about him, and were taught by him, 
as the truth is in Jesus. And here's what Paul is telling us right now, three different things. He says in verse 22, this is what God is calling you to do. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. Now, I want to stop here for one quick second. When I first became a Christian, I was borderline obsessed with behavior modification. I thought that what it meant to be a Christian was to stop doing all the things that were sins. Now, make no mistake about it, God does call us to leave behind our, the, the sins and the things in our life that are harmful to our relationship with him. But I thought fully and totally that what it meant to be a Christian was just, here's a list of all the things that I'm doing, and once I stop these, God will be pleased with me, and I'll go to heaven. Now, what Paul is saying in verse 22 is he's saying he's not talking about behavior modification. He's talking about something much deeper and much more difficult than that. He says in verse 22, to take off your former way of life, to take off not the old behaviors, but the old self, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying all of us have an old self, an old man, things about us that were corrupted, not by bad practices or bad behaviors, but much more dangerous and scary than that, but that the motivations, our desires themselves were corrupted. And Paul is telling us right now that if you want what God is calling us to do is to unlearn our old self. Now, one of the things that's really profound and challenging is that we cannot change what we are unaware of. What is your old way of life? Who's your old self? What are those desires? What are those motivations? Now, comprehensive and real discipleship, real transformation by Jesus doesn't stop at just learning a couple new scriptures. It means unlearning and becoming aware of the way that our old self operates, going inside, going in internal to excavate and to learn what it means, to learn who our old self is, and by God's grace and in this power of his Holy Spirit, to put off the, the old self. And then Paul continues in verse 23. He says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's such a beautiful way of saying it. That what God wants for you is not just for you to add new things to your brain, but he wants our minds to be renewed, to be made new, to be transformed. This means basically to be enlightened to what God is calling and hoping our life to be. I don't know if you've ever read a scripture, sat in a sermon, sat in a Bible study, where your entire life you've seen something, but then all of a sudden, it's just like a light bulb goes off. And now you can't go backwards. It's one of those moments where you like, man, yeah, I kind of wish I never heard that because now I have to do something about it. <laughs> I've had a number of those moments in my life where I feel my brain, I, I sense my spirit being renewed, and I can no, no longer go back to the old way of things. And Paul says in verse 24, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. So here's what Paul says, take off the old man have your mind renewed, and to put on the new person. Now, this is not like putting on a new shirt where you just change it one day and it happens. This is something that happens slowly, organically, over time, but it does require a lot of effort. Now, I would never want us thinking that it just means um, to kind of go to church one day and to get a truth, and all of a sudden, you got it. You're changed. Americans think that knowing something is the same as being transformed. Oh, yeah, I know that already. We, we should be generous. Oh, I know that. 
We should be sacrificial. Oh, I know that. Are we doing it? The biggest question that we have to ask ourselves a lot of times is not what do we know, but how has what we know transformed our lives from the inside out? Mother Teresa does not know anything, did not know anything different about what it means to sacrifice and to serve the poor than I do. We have the same Bible. We've read the same scriptures. But the level of devotion that her life is to mine are not comparable. There's a transformation that has taken place in her life that I have yet to know anything about, although we know the same facts about God and the same facts about Scripture. So God is calling us on a journey, and I'm, I'm going to borrow a model from an educational psychologist. His name is Benjamin Bloom, and whatever part of this is helpful, take it and run with it. Whatever part is not, throw it away. But basically what he argues is that there are five stages of transformation. Five stages of transformation, they go from awareness, and awareness is simply that you become aware and you know what something is. And it moves to curiosity. Curiosity is where you start to think about, how can I apply this truth to my life? Then it's valuing. Value is when action starts to happen in your life, where you start to take small steps in the direction of change. And then it moves from valuing something to prioritizing. Now, when you prioritize, this is where you're not just dabbling around in it, but you start to make some significant changes in your life. And the last one is ownership. And ownership is when a truth has transformed you, where it's deeply embedded in your life and you orient your entire life around this truth. Now, let me give a small example about how this worked in my own life. Um, when we first started Renaissance, I had no boundaries whatsoever between work and home life. We were working out of our apartment right down the block on 121st Street, and it felt like I never turned off from the church. My wife and I were having a conversation one day, and she was saying, like, oh, man, I really want to take this trip to India. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I could take that trip. I felt so behind on work. And she said something that I really couldn't argue with. She said, we haven't talked about anything except for this church. And I was like, that's not true. Is it fair to say that... <laughs> But she was right. Uh, I definitely, I became obsessed with work and I had no boundaries. And then I heard some messages on what it means to have boundaries, to have a Sabbath, to have a 24-hour period where I trusted that Jesus was the Lord of this church, that he would build this church, and that I was nothing more than a babysitter. And we went on a trip and I started to become aware of what it means to have like a Sabbath, to have practices in my life that are devoted, where my life is devoted not to a church or to a job, but my life was devoted to God and to my family. So then I started to get curious, like, all right, so am I going to do Mondays? Am I going to do Fridays? And I started to think about how this truth would apply to my life. And then it went towards ownership, where I started to say, sorry, towards valuing, where I started to think, you know what? This is like actually life-giving. I'm not as consumed with work anymore. I'm present. I'm a Christian. I'm like a real Christian that I'm actually trusting and receiving God's love, that I'm relaxing in Jesus, that I feel cherished by him even when I'm not doing anything, which is the ultimate goodness of the gospel. And I started to really see the benefits of it in my life. And then I moved from valuing it to prioritizing it. We're like, man, listen, this is, this is what I need to, to be sustained. If I'm going to be faithful here for the next 20, 30 years, I need this in my life. And I started to put up real boundaries around it. And I moved towards ownership, where now everything in my life operates around protecting this time off. My Slack goes on snooze, my emails are, are silenced, and unless it's an emergency for 24 hours, 
We work hard on Thursday to make sure that there's nothing else that has to be done on that Friday, no work, so that we can truly be children of God. Now, over the last eight years, I have not learned any new information. There has not been any aha moments that have happened. The truth of God's intention for us to have periods of rest over time moved from a small seed to a giant tree in my life. Now, when Paul says that you and I need to put on the new self, what he is talking about is not just you learning a new fact or two. He is talking about going through this process of transformation from the inside out, where now it has gone from a small seed to a giant tree in your life. Now, two things are necessary for this to happen, and we'll see these in 1 Peter 2. Number one, 1 Peter 2, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Here's what he says. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you have come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. So what Peter says in verse 2, the first thing that I want us to consider what God is calling us, inviting us all to right now, is to desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. If you and I are going to grow up and mature and be transformed, we need repeated consumption of scripture. If If you've ever been around a newborn baby, they don't just eat in the morning and say, okay, that was good. Like, maybe next week I'll have another meal. Constantly, they are constantly feeding. They're constantly consuming the milk. This is what they need to grow up. And what we need as people, whether you are brand new to Christianity or whether you've been rocking with Jesus for 20 years, is you need repeated consumption of Scripture. Now, we don't just need that. We also need what he says in verse 5. You yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What he says here is that we are individual stones meant to be built into a house. You are an individual stone that is intended to be built into a house, fitted together with other people, other followers of Jesus. And this is the thing that God is calling us to be. Not just a new person, but a new people. And quite honestly, not only do we need just routine consumption of scripture, we need community. Your walk with God is a community project. Now, over the years at Renaissance, ways that we've tried to do this, from the beginning of our church, we've had something called community groups. And community groups were groups of about 15 people that met in someone's home. And for the first six years, this is what we did. Then the pandemic happened, and then we switched from community groups to DNA groups. DNA groups were groups of about six or seven people that met online weekly at a whole bunch of different time slots, and they were a respite. They were a place for people to build deep community and to go through scripture together. The pandemic was very hard, especially living through through it in New York. And to be quite honest, I don't know where I would be without my DNA group. Shout out to my Tuesday morning guys. (laughs) Now, DNA groups are relaunching on March 27th. And what DNA groups are is a group of about six or seven men or a group of about six or seven women that come together and you go through this sermon, uh, you go through a 10-minute teaching together and there's some discussion questions and there's a whole lot of great ways to connect with the community here. And a lot of people have said over and over again how much their group has thrived and how much they themselves have thrived spiritually because of their DNA group. 
But one thing that we've learned over the last couple of years is there are some people who have really deep and meaningful community already. And what they want is they want community for sure, but they also want opportunities to go really deep into a topic or something that allows them to go more, in a, uh, to go more heavily studying something, really unearthing something, uh, much more in the Bible study format, and still have some community. So, drum roll, please. We are announcing something at Renaissance called growth groups as well. Now, growth groups are going to be um, something, they're going to be opportunities for you to dig very deeply into one specific topic. Now, I'm going to talk about what the three growth, growth groups are this term, also launching at the same time as DNA groups, and then I'll get to what the format is going to look like. So the three, the three growth groups we have are, the first one is going to be led by our very own Lester Kim on Sundays called The Meaning of Marriage. Yeah, y'all like that already. All right. <laughs> now, this is for anybody who is married and you want to strengthen your marriage, anybody who one day wants to be married and you really want to have a good framework for what that looks like and prepare yourself well for that season of life, or any other people who are just curious about what it looks like to grow in that area. So if you are single, can you take it? Yes, we want you to take it. If you are married, can you take it? Yes, we want you to take it as well. And that's going to be on Sunday afternoons, and the exact time will be rolling out as well. Others of you, man, y'all have just been blowing my inbox up talking about how much you've loved Bible studies, and you've loved an extended time to really be in Scripture, to not just learn what something means, but learn yourself how to refine your own practices and, and ways that you yourself can grow in reading the Bible. And we are extremely grateful to have our very own Dr. Amber Field leading a growth group on going through the book of First John. Yes, and if y'all have ever been fortunate to sit under uh, Amber's teaching, you know that she does that, like, for real. And if you do the First John growth group, uh, you're going to spend eight weeks going through the book of First John, learning not just everything the Scripture is saying, but really learning yourself how, to, how you yourself can be a person who rightly divides the word of truth. You can grow not just in your time and the consumption of Scripture, but in your ability to approach Scripture for yourself. That's going to be Tuesday evenings. Um, and I'm leading a growth group on Wednesday mornings. This one's a little bit more uh, somber in tone. I don't use this word lightly, but inside America and also inside the church, there is a pandemic for men who consume pornography. And we talk around it. We, we, we tip time around it. We talk about We sing songs. And there are so many, there are so many brothers who... Studies show that up to two-thirds or sometimes three-quarters of men in church, not outside, are, have some form of addiction to pornography. And I'm leading a, a growth group called Closing the Window, where we're going to hopefully find freedom from something that plagues so many brothers. Now, the Closing the Window growth group will be limited to men only because, ladies, men hide. Every, you give them one little opportunity to hide, and we, we'll, we'll hide. And we really want this to be a, a place that is safe and protected and a way for us to grow and to define freedom. So what is the format of the growth group, Whether, regardless of which one you do? It's going to be one large Zoom. And you'll get the link to that Zoom. And every single week, as soon as you get to the Zoom, you'll you will be assigned to a one breakout group. Your breakout group will be the same for the entire eight weeks. So you will be able to build community with people over the course of this breakout group. And there's going to be a lot of teaching, really going deep into whatever the topic is for that growth group. And then there'll be small group conversation where you can check in with your brothers or sisters uh, and learn how this is applying and hitting you personally. 
And then there's going to be large group conversation where you can hear not just what your group said, but what's popping and what's, what's circulating around all of the different groups. And then back to teaching and more small groups. It's going to be an incredibly dynamic way to go. So the big million dollar question is, what should you do? Should you do a DNA group or should you do a growth group? Yes. <laughs> Can you do both of them at the same time? No. I don't want us to fall prey to the idea that we can just consume endless information. I do want us to slow down and make sure that we are investing our life into something and investing in it deeply. So here's what's going to happen. Tuesday morning, you're going to get an email, which is more reason that if you have not already filled out a connection card, if you're not getting our weekly emails, make sure you stop by the lounge or text Harlem to 94000 to get uh, to make sure your connection card is filled out because Tuesday morning, the registration is going to open. You'll get an email and a little bit more information on how to sign up for either a DNA group or a growth group. For those of you who are already in DNA groups and you're thriving, I definitely want you to consider to keep those intact. But We certainly understand if some of you want to leave and go towards a growth group. I'll end it by saying this. Guidance is not something that God gives. Guidance is something that God does. Jesus is the great shepherd, which means that he doesn't just tell you what to do. As a shepherd, he guides, he leads. Here's what I know to be true in my own life. God can guide moving feet. And what I want you to do is I want you to move and I want you to prayerfully consider what God is calling you to do. And by what God is calling you to do, I mean what you can routinely and consistently invest in. I don't want you to hop in for a week or two weeks because that's very disruptive to the groups. But I want you to be prayerfully considering what it is God is calling you to do and then trusting that if you should have done something else, that the guidance that God offers us is not something that if you make a mistake, you go down the wrong path, it's, it's all over. I don't want us being caught in analysis paralysis. Make a decision and trust that Jesus, our good shepherd, is going to continue to guide you and to lead you. Not for, your, not for your namesake, because of his namesake. He is good and he is faithful. So let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, our good shepherd, Lord, we want to be transformed. Lord, we do not want to be hypocrites. We don't want our external confessions to not match our internal transformation. We want to be people who follow after you. We want to be made in your image. Lord, I pray for this upcoming semester of growth groups and DNA groups. Lord, I pray for transformation. I pray for connection. I pray for light bulbs. I pray for freedom. Lord, would your spirit saturate all these things, Lord, because we cannot do it by ourselves. Lord, would you give us courage to move in the direction that you are calling us to move in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.